Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Scholarship in the last 60 years has made much of General Douglas MacArthur's relationships with men like President Truman, President Roosevelt, Admiral Nimitz, General Marshall, and General Eisenhower. All of these relationships reveal MacArthur's genius, but also certain character traits that made him enemies and helped him earn a reputation for being difficult to work with. His working relationships with these men spanned decades and involved some of the most trying years in American history. It was with Eisenhower, however, that MacArthur had the longest, closest working relationship, and it is perhaps this relationship that reveals the most about the general. This month's podcast will focus on MacArthur and Eisenhower, two men who spent their lives committed to the West Point motto, duty, honor, country. Although the differences between MacArthur and Eisenhower were acute, there were a number of similarities. Both men were devoted to the Army. Both were fanatically interested in Army football. Both achieved the five-star rank of General of the Army. Both were incredibly ambitious. Both were praised and decorated by America's allies. Both led successful occupations in the critical period after World War II, and both were held up as potential presidential candidates by their fellow citizens. Despite their similarities, however, it was their differences that came to characterize their relationship. MacArthur, praised by newspapers as Destiny's Child and Mars, was a larger-than-life character, proud, aristocratic, and at times Olympian. A general in his thirties, MacArthur's meteoric rise to the top of his profession was what he had been raised to expect based on his distinguished military pedigree and an innate sense of his own destiny. In contrast, Eisenhower came from much humbler circumstances and would spend years languishing as a major and lieutenant colonel, watching those around him rise through the ranks until his own dramatic rise from lieutenant colonel to general of the army during World War II. In addition, where MacArthur had a record as a combat hero during World War I, Eisenhower had been stateside, training soldiers and doing other administrative work. Eisenhower's lack of combat experience would irk him for the rest of his career, but he would prove a valuable asset to the Army in other ways. Unlike MacArthur, who excelled at being different and aloof, Eisenhower had a way of putting people at ease. He was far less visionary than MacArthur, but was a good deal more practical. The two men first began working together in late 1932, when MacArthur asked Eisenhower to be his personal military assistant someone who could draft statements, reports, and letters for his signature. Ten years MacArthur's junior, at the time Eisenhower was a major. MacArthur was a general and chief of staff of the United States Army. MacArthur was well aware of Eisenhower's talents, primarily his ability to reflect the attitudes and opinions of his superiors in writing, and his uncanny ability to know when to pass things up the chain of command and when to take care of things himself. MacArthur personally persuaded Eisenhower to work with him in D.C., and Eisenhower later wrote, 
General MacArthur was very nice to me, and after all, I know of no greater compliment the bosses can give you than to want you hanging around. For a while it must have seemed a dream job. Eisenhower called MacArthur a rewarding man to work for, a boss who didn't care about hours, just that the work got done. While he disapproved of MacArthur's propensity for mixing politics with work, he was impressed with MacArthur's intellect and went as far as to say he was a genius. Over time, however, the relationship grew strained. Like MacArthur, Eisenhower was an ambitious officer. MacArthur often indicated that if Eisenhower stayed with him, he would be a prime candidate for future promotion. Eisenhower waited and waited, but nothing ever came of these promises. Instead, as Eisenhower chafed under the weight of promise but never acted on promotions, he began to resent MacArthur and find fault with him. After his presidency, Eisenhower recalled that during his days as MacArthur's aide in Washington, he never had a government or military car put at his disposal for official business. He resented the fact that MacArthur, as chief of staff, had a car for his own use, but never offered to lend this car when Eisenhower was sent to Capitol Hill or somewhere else on official business. At the time, Eisenhower had little of his own money and had to take a taxi or streetcar to his destination. What rankled him further was the fact that he had to get money for this from a disbursement officer and then return any leftover change when he got back. In addition, the fact that MacArthur liked to refer to himself in the third person also began to seem more and more strange to Eisenhower. Working for MacArthur would also provide Eisenhower with a front-row seat to the controversial bonus march. In 1932, as the United States was in the throes of the Great Depression, Thousands of World War I veterans marched on Washington, D.C. to demand early payment of bonuses promised them in the 1924 World War Adjusted Compensation Act. The bonuses were payable in 1945, but with so many veterans out of work, few could imagine surviving until 1945, and they wanted their money early. Their march on Washington made little difference. Congress was unwilling or unable to take the action they wanted, and with nowhere else to go, many veterans remained camped out in Washington. When Capitol Police were unable to remove them, the Army was called in. As Chief of Staff of the Army, General MacArthur was not expected to personally participate in the eviction of the bonus marchers. In fact, Eisenhower encouraged him to stay away from the whole situation. He believed that it would be a public relations nightmare for the Army, and that the farther away the Chief of Staff was from the incident, the better for the Army. MacArthur was convinced, though, that the bonus marchers had been infiltrated by communists, dedicated to overthrowing the United States government. There was some evidence of this, but by and large, the bonus marchers were not fifth columnists or communists. At the time, military officers in Washington, D.C. wore civilian clothes to work. MacArthur announced his intention to personally supervise the eviction of the bonus marchers and called for his dress uniform. He was determined to either personally put this potential communist coup down, or, if it turned out to be a public relations disaster, to be the most public face of the operation in an attempt to deflect criticism from the army. Eisenhower flatly disapproved of MacArthur's actions, but sent for his uniform as well and accompanied MacArthur. As Eisenhower predicted, the event was a public relations nightmare. MacArthur was widely vilified, and public opinion swung sharply in favor of the bonus marchers. 
Despite Eisenhower's personal objections to MacArthur's actions, though, he would submit a report of the action in favor of MacArthur. In later life, MacArthur glossed over the bonus march and made no mention of Eisenhower's attempted intervention. In his autobiography, he merely states that when he took command of the operation, he brought along two officers of future fame, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower and Major George S. Patton. The bonus march disaster and the worsening economic depression scuttled President Herbert Hoover's chances of being re-elected. In his place rose Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt chose to keep MacArthur on as chief of staff and eventually extended his tour of duty twice. When it was MacArthur's time to retire, Roosevelt then approved of an arrangement by which MacArthur would leave the army and become military advisor to the Philippines, then a Commonwealth territory of the United States. MacArthur was allowed to pick a small staff to accompany him to the Philippines, and he chose Eisenhower to be his chief of staff. Eisenhower preferred a troop assignment somewhere else, but a very persuasive MacArthur convinced him to go to the Philippines. Eisenhower asked for an official fixed timetable for his duty in the Philippines, but this was not forthcoming. Nevertheless, when it was time to go, Eisenhower and his wife Mamie picked up and went to Manila, beginning a new chapter in the MacArthur-Eisenhower relationship. According to biographer William Manchester, MacArthur lacked the open, democratic approach of Eisenhower, which often put him at odds with his fellow Americans. But in the Philippines, he was a star. In 1936, MacArthur accepted the rank of Field Marshal of the Philippines, making him the only American to ever hold the rank of Field Marshal. He received a gold baton from Manuel Quezon, the President of the Philippines, which is on display today in Gallery 3 of the MacArthur Memorial. MacArthur also designed his own uniform, a uniform described as Ruritanian by his biographer Manchester, with a gold-braided cap. Eisenhower, now a lieutenant colonel, found the whole situation embarrassing and ridiculous. He had advised MacArthur earlier to refuse the rank pointing out that it would be rather ridiculous to be field marshal of a virtually non-existent army. But once again, MacArthur rejected his advice. The relationship between the two men began to cool even further around this time. According to Eisenhower, MacArthur wanted a big parade to show off the Philippine army he was building. Philippine President Manuel Quezon rejected this idea as being too expensive, Disappointed by this failure, MacArthur blamed Eisenhower and another aide for the idea. Bonner Fellers, an officer who would become one of MacArthur's trusted aides, told another story. In his version, Eisenhower bypassed MacArthur and passed on his own proposals about Philippine development to Quezon in an attempt to enhance his own prestige. When informed of these activities, MacArthur reportedly exploded, letting Eisenhower know that he would never trust him again. Nevertheless, even as the relationship cooled, MacArthur continued to rely heavily on Eisenhower, even sending him as his deputy to the United States in 1938 to ask the government for more military aid and money for the poorly supplied Filipino army. As Europe moved ever closer to war, though, Eisenhower became more determined to split from MacArthur. On September 1, 1939, he sat next to his radio listening to news about Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland. He immediately went to MacArthur and told him he wanted to go home as soon as possible, as he believed the United States would soon enter the war and he wanted to participate in the preparatory work.
MacArthur was not encouraging, telling Eisenhower that he was making a big mistake, that the Philippines would be a major theater in the coming war. In the end, however, MacArthur did not stand in his way, and even came with his wife Jean to see Eisenhower and Mamie off at the docks when they left for the United States. This honor did not go unrecognized by Eisenhower or Mamie. It was well known that MacArthur had only seen one other officer off in this fashion. Whatever their differences, MacArthur clearly recognized Eisenhower's abilities. In Eisenhower's efficiency report, MacArthur wrote, A brilliant officer. In time of war, this officer should be promoted to general rank immediately. His general value to the service is superior. Eisenhower returned to the States, and after the war began, he caught the attention of General George Marshall because of his experience in the Philippines. Marshall had not been in the Philippines since 1915 and needed a senior officer on his staff who knew the islands better than he did. Soon, Eisenhower was named Deputy Chief of the War Plans Division. In this capacity, he was asked by Marshall what should be done about the beleaguered Philippines. Eisenhower responded that the Philippines would fall and that rather than reinforcing it, the Allies should focus on setting up operations in Australia. He also recommended that nothing be done about MacArthur. There was no hope for the Philippines, and everyone in leadership knew it, but the public couldn't grasp this. MacArthur's dramatic dispatches from Bataan and Corregidor captured the public's imagination and gave them hope for an American victory in the Philippines. With public interest and support in MacArthur so high, he soon captured the imagination of politicians and even the President of the United States. As a result, in the early months of 1942, even as they rationally knew nothing could be done to save the Philippines, the White House and the War Department made public and private efforts to relieve MacArthur and his forces. This included regular promises of supplies and reinforcements, whether they existed or not. With his troops trapped on Bataan and Corregidor, and with daily promises of aid on the way, MacArthur fired hundreds of communiques off to Washington. In Washington, Eisenhower was tasked with dealing with many of these messages. Much of what we know about Eisenhower's feelings towards MacArthur during this period can be found in Eisenhower's diary. As he dealt with daily communiques from MacArthur requesting supplies, reinforcements, or long lengthy discussions of strategy, he became increasingly irritated. Eisenhower's irritation probably stemmed from his weariness with MacArthur's dramatic style and his frustration at being a virtual messenger boy between MacArthur and Marshall. Having missed out on combat and troop command during World War I, and having come back from the Philippines in order to be involved in this war, Eisenhower sat in Washington watching yet another war pass him by. There is no hint in Eisenhower's diary of any sympathy for MacArthur or the situation he was facing. Knowing nothing could really be done for MacArthur, Eisenhower continued to send the standard War Department message of stand and fight to encourage the general and his doomed troops. He wrote in his diary on January 19, 1942, In many ways MacArthur is as big a baby as ever, but we've got to keep him fighting. Four days later he wrote, Today in a most flamboyant radio, MacArthur recommends a successor in case of his death. Commenting on MacArthur's choice of a successor, he still likes his bootlickers, implying quite a sense of bitterness, perhaps because he felt MacArthur had often held him back in favor of more obsequious officers. As the situation in the Philippines became more desperate, General Marshall and President Roosevelt decided to rescue MacArthur. 
He was deemed too important to be captured or killed, but once again Eisenhower disagreed. He believed that his superiors were reacting to public opinion, not to cold military logic. Eisenhower confided in his diary his reservations about saving MacArthur. He is doing a good job where he is, but I am doubtful that he'll do so well in more complicated situations. Batan is made to order for him. It's in the public eye. It has made him a public hero. It has all the essentials of drama. Ironically, given these feelings, it was Eisenhower who was tasked with drafting the message ordering MacArthur to leave the Philippines. When MacArthur replied not now to the request, Eisenhower took to his diary again, but this time he agreed with MacArthur. When MacArthur did finally leave the island, Eisenhower resigned himself to the situation, writing that he hoped MacArthur would be able to do the miracles in the Pacific that Washington expected of him. Over the next years, both Eisenhower and MacArthur would rise to the rank of five-star general and serve as commanders of massive American and allied forces. It is worthy of note that MacArthur never sent Eisenhower, or really any other commander, congratulations or telegrams of encouragement or of well-wishing throughout the war. MacArthur received plenty of these from other commanders, but even on the occasion of D-Day and V-E Day, MacArthur never congratulated Eisenhower personally. In his autobiography, MacArthur includes a passage from the diary of Field Marshal Viscount Allenbrook, chairman of the British Chiefs of Staff. Allenbrook wrote, MacArthur was the greatest general and the best strategist the war produced. He certainly outshone Marshall, Eisenhower, and all the other American and British generals, including Montgomery. In MacArthur's eyes, he still outclassed Eisenhower as a general and a strategist. On the occasion of MacArthur's brilliant invasion at Incheon during the Korean War, Eisenhower sent him a message of congratulation, as he had done throughout World War II. When MacArthur was fired by Truman less than a year later, Eisenhower refused press requests to comment on the firing, denouncing the media for trying to portray him as an enemy of MacArthur. Eisenhower kept quiet about the MacArthur-Truman controversy, but he was hardly surprised by it. As he had learned during the bonus march and during his time handling MacArthur's message traffic during World War II, MacArthur was a force to be reckoned with, and his actions were either brilliant or could send him careening into controversy. In 1952, MacArthur made an effort to gain the Republican nomination for president. So did Eisenhower. At the Republican National Convention, however, Eisenhower ran away with the nomination. He would go on to become president, but before he took office, as president-elect, he met with MacArthur. The two men made a public show of good faith. Despite the differences and clear indications that they'd had a tense relationship at times, both men continued to publicly proclaim their admiration for each other. But they would never meet again, and Eisenhower would refuse to take MacArthur's advice on dealing with the Soviet Union. MacArthur later wrote of Eisenhower, I have always felt for him something akin to the affection of an older man for a younger brother. His amazingly successful career has filled me with pride and admiration. This can seem rather patronizing, and MacArthur certainly never thought he and Eisenhower were equals, but it is also clear that Eisenhower benefited greatly from his time with MacArthur. In all, he spent seven years working for MacArthur. This time prepared him for future challenges and thrust him into the realm of the other major actors of the day. Educated and influenced by men like MacArthur, George Marshall, George Patton, Franklin Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill, 
He was probably more prepared to be President of the United States than most of his predecessors. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov. Oh! <gasps>